Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. We're in the third of four sermons on the series, Exploring Rhythms of Life in Christ. First, we looked at worship. Second, we looked at formation. This morning, we're looking at community. What does it mean to be a healthy community? So as we do, there's kind of a challenging teaching before us, loving your enemies. So I ask you to join me, join me in prayer. Lord, would you open each of our hearts to receive your, your challenging words? Help us to know how they apply to our lives and to the way we love. Amen. So, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Trying to cover this in 25 minutes feels a bit like trying to shove an elephant in a pillowcase. It's just too much. Um, The landscape of, of ethical, religious ethical kind of history, I think this teaching rises a little bit like the Himalayan mountain range. In 2008, I had the joy of spending a few months in northern India, and I was in Darjeeling, India. Have any of you ever been there? Where the tea comes from? It's on the border of India and Nepal, and it's already way up in the mountains, and there's these beautiful tea fields, but you're, you're already like seven or 8,000 feet up, but then you just keep, keep, keep looking, and the Himalayan range, which Everest is a part of, just rises so incomprehensibly high. It's just, it's mind-blowingly beautiful. It's an overwhelming sight. It's breathtaking. It's, it's challenging, in a way, to, to process. It's beautiful. And I want to say that this, this is that teaching. Uh, this teaching from Jesus is a bit like that. Love your enemies. Gazing upon this mountain with the eyes of your heart, it will leave you in awe if you let it. Um, no one said it quite so forcefully before Jesus. No one lived it out like Jesus did. And no one but Jesus' followers are, are so clearly called to live it out like Jesus did, his church. So I'm only going to begin to scratch the surface, but, but I do hope to offer you a little bit of guidance on how to begin ascending this mountain, this challenging mountain. As we climb it, we do face all kinds of challenges, challenges like this. Assuming love involves forgiveness, who, who do I forgive? How? Why do I forgive? What about abusive people? Uh, should, should you love and forgive even if someone doesn't repent? Can you love someone but still maintain a healthy boundary? Here's one especially important for a healthy church. How does love covering a multitude of sins differ from turning a blind eye? A lot of difficult questions. I'd like to climb this mountain in three stages, and I want to do so through three kind of questions that will guide us. Who do I love? How do I love? And why am I able to love? Who do I love? How do I love? And why am I able? And we'll get to some of those questions throughout. But here's the, here's the, Lisa actually taught me this in her emails. There's an abbreviation, I guess, younger people use. It's, it's T-L-D-L, too long didn't listen. No, T-L-D-R, too long didn't read. Okay. Okay, got it. This is the too long didn't listen version of the sermon for those of you who are tired this morning and just need a minute. A healthy community is an agape above all community. That's what I want to say. So if you just take one thing home with you, you're, if you're take, you may want to take notes this sermon if you're a note taker. There's going to be a lot of, it's like an outline within an outline within an outline. So um, a healthy community 
is an agape love above all community. So that's where we're going. The first question is this. Who is a disciple of Jesus called to love? I'm going to pick it up in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. If you have a Bible or a phone and you want to follow along, you may. Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your... Who? So let's not overcomplicate the answer. It's very simple. Who do Jesus' followers love? Everyone. Friend or enemy. And everyone in between. So some rando who cuts you off on the interstate or, or a person in the comment section online, uh, a, a waiter, uh, some of you are nurses or doctors, a difficult patient, a political opponent or a political oppressor. Jesus' followers are called to love everyone, full stop. So that's who to love. Jesus is not saying something entirely new here. He's actually drawing on Leviticus. Um, in verse 31, he's basically quoting Leviticus 19.10, where God's people are set apart as holy by the way they love God and love one another, and even, we learn, the outsider. So he says things like, when you harvest your field, leave the edges for the poor in your midst and also for the foreigner. So in Leviticus, the, in, in the ethic of the Beatitudes that Patrick just read, we already see this kind of upside-down, radically distinct way of living in the world, like a, kind of like a mountain peak soaring above the what's-in-it-for-me way of things below. Jesus is calling us to a very unique way of loving. Enemy love does not come naturally to us, does it? Well, to me, um, not in the least. And we feel this as soon as we try to get a little bit more out of the cloud of ideas and into the concrete areas of life. So let's imagine, again, I, lo I love to employ the sanctified imagination. You may close your eyes if you want. There you are, beside the Sea of Galilee. And you're having a picnic of, of roasted fish with your family on a Sunday afternoon. And it's your only chance to rest all week long. You're just beginning to doze off to the sound of gentle waves and the laughter of your children when a Roman soldier approaches you and says, You there, get up and carry my armor over the hill. And you hesitate ever so slightly. So the soldier slaps you with the back of his hand right in front of your family. What do you do? Well, on your way home that night, you're tired from the hike over the hill with a soldier's armor. You're cold because you didn't dress for the evening chill. You're out much later than you expected. You're bleeding because as you were carrying the heavy armor, you fell on some rocks. You're hungry because you never got to eat the fish that you had cooked after all. You're just walking home in the dark, hoping your family had made it home okay. And as you come into town, you have to come by the tax collector's booth, of course. And then you meet eyes with last week's hero, wee little Zacchaeus, before his conversion. And he demands a payoff. He wants the finest wine for his table that night. You have only enough on you to, to buy bread for your children's dinner. So, of course, you're a little resistant to hand it over. So Zacchaeus glances sideways at his Roman guard. And a Roman spear tip thrusts right an inch from your forehead. And the Roman guard says, hand it over, I'll break your kneecaps. No dinner tonight. So as Jesus begins giving definition to love, I invite you to get enemy out of the abstract and make it concrete. Think of one person in your life. One person who has hated you, mistreated you, dishonored you. Now hold them in your heart alongside this teaching, alongside Jesus' words. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. 
If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. So who are you to love? Everyone. Even them. You know who they are. Second, how? How do I love? I want to zoom in especially on verse 29, this, this slap, because it's both a vivid example of enemy love and it's confusing. Uh, I think it shows us how to love our enemies in three very specific ways. And the first way is this. You are to love others by not jealously guarding your own honor. It's important to be very clear here. This teaching is a, villid, uh, it's, it's a very vivid illustration, example of non-retaliatory love in the context of a Roman Empire oppressing and persecuting Christians. It is not a command, please hear this, it is not a command for victims to live with ongoing abuse. So if you or someone you know is being abused, you should report it, you should get help, you should get safe. So the answer to the question, can you forgive and still maintain a boundary, that is an emphatic yes, you can. But you still are called to forgive. We have a duty to react firmly to protect ourselves and others, against harmful actions insofar as we are able. But we're not always able, are we? As we process this teaching, then don't think first of the utmost extremes. And I know some of you have suffered extremely, but don't go all the way to the extreme. Think especially about the daily reality that there is a certain amount of suffering caused by others, both their intentional sins and their just foibles and their unique personalities and their, their, their thoughtlessness. There's a certain amount of that caused by others that we cannot avoid or correct, isn't there? We all come up against this. So Jacques Philippe, he's a French Catholic priest, he's a spiritual director, and he offers some advice that I think is a little scandalizing for moderns, so I want to say it tenderly. And I also can't, I don't want to drown it in overqualifications. Jesus obviously didn't do that. You look at the Beatitudes and you're like, wow, you're really just going to say that and leave it right there? Um, so it's kind of scandalizing. I'd love to have follow-up conversations with you if it's helpful. But here's, I think, faithful advice. Again, keeping in mind, I'm not speaking of all the extremes, but of the daily things. How should we react? Here's what he says. How should we react to all the suffering caused by people around us? He says, we should consent to them. This is not being merely passive. This requires an attitude that is neither spontaneous or natural. But it is the only one by which to achieve peace and interior freedom. Now, I'm going to let him go on in a minute. I just want to say this. The chief insult of a backhanded slap to the right cheek was not physical. In the ancient Near East, it was a social. It was a dishonoring action, one of the utmost actions of dishonor. To turn the other cheek, then, is a consent to being dishonored, to let your reputation suffer. Not from a lack of conviction about justice, or a failure of courage, but from actually a cultivated mindset of love that requires great courage and enormous strength. To deny your instincts and to choose to love requires strength. So the turning of the other cheek is actually an act of peaceful resistance, showing that the offender actually, it's a way of telling him, you are utterly powerless to actually insult my honor. But for that to be true, your honor must come from a kind of fortress within you and not be subject to the whims of others. It is to say to an enemy who slaps you, you cannot take my honor because my honor is held in a deep place, a fortress within my heart that you are utterly incapable of assaulting. Again, Philippe is a masterful guide here. He goes on. He says, one of the biggest obstacles to loving and forgiving even our enemy is the feeling that the other party's behavior has deprived us of something vital. 
this confused feeling nourishes resentment. We think, I'm not getting the honor I deserve, or the behavior of the person at the head of my community, be it a, a boss or a pastor or a political leader, keeps my spiritual life from developing as it should. To live at peace, even when it is the people around us who are causing us suffering, we must take a radical look at our frustration. It does not correspond to reality. Other people's faults do not deprive us of anything. And I know this is getting long, but stay with me. I do think this is, there's, a, there's a gold nugget in here. He goes on. On the material plane, absolutely, yes, other people do deprive us of many things. And here I'd want to again qualify him a bit. The, the material and the spiritual are, are not wholly separate. <laughs> Suffering really does wound us. We know that. It really does wound us. And sometimes it wounds us gravely. But his point is that it cannot rob us entirely of what is most essential. And so he goes on to say, On the material plane, of course, other people can deprive us of many things, but not of what is most essential, the only true and lasting good, God's love for us, and the love we can have with him and the inner growth it produces. He says, Faith, hope, and love make human beings fully human. Faith, hope, and love, all else is secondary and relative. And here's the fortress we're talking about, okay? There is something inside of us that is indestructible, that is guaranteed by God's faithfulness and love. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again, I'm not speaking here especially to extreme cases of abuse, especially of the young, but, but of, you know, because that self-evidently does, does great harm. And yet on All Saints Day, we do remember, we can't help but think of, of St. Jesus Christ, who was violently pinned to a cross and then used his dying breath to proclaim forgiveness to his torturers. It is an extreme, extreme call that we are called to, this call to forgiveness. But for you and I, I think this hits home in less gruesome but still grievous ways. You know, I know many of you in this room have wounds from painful church experiences, a lot of us, from abusive work environments. Just talked to someone last week. From, from neglectful or harsh parents, maybe. I know many of us in the midst of, of midterm elections are tempted into resenting and demonizing even you know, political opponents or oppressors. Many of us who are married surely carry some wounds from, from words or actions um, you know, that a spouse said that cut us really deeply. It could be as simple, simple as a roommate who just doesn't ever do the dishes and is driving you mad. Or, or it could be an addict who you love who's trying and failing to be who you desire and need them to be. Again, Philippe drives the point home, as Jesus often does, a little hyperbolically. He says, whatever happens, whatever mistakes are committed by this person or that, it robs us of exactly nothing. No one can prevent us from loving God and serving our neighbor. No one can stop us from tending towards the fullness of love. The world could be collapsing around you, but it wouldn't rob you of the possibility of praying, of placing your trust in God, and of loving. The point is this, you can turn the other cheek because your honor is not found in being loved by enemies. It is in loving enemies. Your honor is not found in being loved by enemies and others. It is found in loving others. And you can always do that. Turning the other cheek then requires that you love others even when it means relinquishing your own honor. Now, when a community does this, it becomes healthy. Why? Because it becomes a community of people who are not just consciously or subconsciously just trying to get their own needs met. 
You know, we all come with our own needs, and we want them to be met and filled up, and so oftentimes a community is just reduced to that. A bunch of people trying to get their needs met. But the church is called to something much more beautiful, to be a community of people defined by a selfless love that overflows into radical forgiveness of people because your needs are already met in Christ. Forgiveness, then. That's the second thing I want to talk about. What does turning the other cheek teach us? The second thing it teaches us about love is that loving others means refusing resentment and practicing forgiveness. And I think this is the heart of the teaching. Forgiveness is like a mother. Forgiveness birthed the church. Forgiveness nurtures the church. Without forgiveness, the church starves. I'd like to dwell here for a bit and look at what forgiveness is and how we do it and what are its fruits. So first, what, what is forgiveness? I think forgiveness, there's a lot of ways we could define it, but it's four actions. Forgiveness is not fundamentally an idea. It's something we do. It is four actions. And the first is this. It is to name a real wrong that has been done against you. This means that forgiving is not turning a blind eye. It is not condoning. You should not have been backhanded by the Roman soldier. That was wrong. He should not have done it. That's where forgiveness begins, with a real offense. Second, it is a refusal to identify the offender only with their fault, but also as a fellow sinner. It's a refusal to identify the offender only with their fault, but also as a fellow sinner. So it's to say in prayer, Lord, help me see this Roman soldier is more than his worst impulses. You know, misguided and bent, perhaps, by a violent upbringing or, or fear of his cruel superior in the army or, or his own insecurity. Remind me, too, Lord, that I am a sinner in need of grace. You know, Jesus reminds us that those who have been forgiven much love much. If you find that you're having a very hard time forgiving and that you have a lot of resentment, maybe the place to start is dwelling on the depths of your own sin. Not, not as a source of shame at all but as a reminder of God's lavish grace upon you, that he loved you, you who were once his enemy. And so it brings you down a notch, and it helps you remember we're kind of on level ground, even with your enemies. Third, it is to do this. Forgiveness is releasing the wrongdoer, from the to, sorry, releasing the wrongdoer to the justice of God, to the justice of God. Lord, you alone know my heart and their heart. In the end, I trust you as judge, so just judge justly, and I release them to you, and then I am free to love fully. Fourth, it is aiming at reconciliation or restoration if it is appropriate or possible. That one requires a little more qualification. Forgiveness is unconditional. We're called to do it. The other person, even if they don't repent, you're called to forgive them. But then ideally, the process of forgiveness tends towards reconciliation and restoration, but these things are conditional on things like your safety or, or their repentance. So reconciliation is really just a coming back to friendly terms with someone, but it doesn't necessarily mean trusting them fully again. There may be some boundaries you still have to maintain, and that's okay. Restoration is a return to full, trusting relationship, just as it was before the offense. Now, these things do require repentance and humility from both parties. Knowing to what degree reconciliation and restoration should be pursued, that's situational. It requires discernment. Um, Tim Keller's new book on for, uh, called Just Forgive, I haven't read it yet, but at the back has an excellent practical guide just on, on thinking through practical scenarios of forgiveness, what to do, how to do it. So there's a good resource for you. Again, forgiveness, unconditional, and it always involves naming the offense, refusing to reduce the offender to their offense, releasing them to the justice, justice of God. Now notice I said justice. 
not love. Why? Forgiveness for the Christian is only possible because the justice of God is real. You know, most of you know the story by now of Rachel Den Hollander, the former gymnast who was abused by Larry Nasser. And, you know, she's become this critically important voice, I think, for victim advocacy, especially for the church. And in her book, What a Girl's Worth, she warns against what can be a horrific evil in the church, which is using forgiveness to silence people. Uh, you should just forgive and move on. We don't need to talk about it, you know, stuffing it up, but sweeping it under the rug. And instead, she helps us see how actually the cross of Christ lays the theological groundwork for holding forgiveness and justice together, always. There is no pitting of justice and forgiveness against one another, she argues, because on the cross, the justice of God was poured out so that the forgiveness of God could be poured out. They always work together. And you see this theology at work in her courtroom words that have become famous. She looked right at Larry Nasser and she said, Larry, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt, justice, that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. Because true repentance and true forgiveness, you must recognize and take upon you the soul-crushing weight of the wrong, right? So she, she says, I pray you experience that. And that you may have true repentance and true forgiveness of God, which you need far more than the forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Beautiful words. The only reason you are free to forgive, then, is because vengeance is God's. And God is just. And he will have justice. Oppressed people know this very well. You know, it was this very comfort that Martin Luther King, that drove him to peaceful protest amidst the evils of racism. So that's what forgiveness is. Very quickly, how do we do it and what are its fruits? Well, how do we forgive? Forgiveness is not a feeling as we have seen. It is for actions, actions of the soul, we might say. Understand that forgiveness is granted to someone long before it is felt. So if there is a specific person on your heart during the sermon right now, how do you forgive them? you prayerfully move through these four actions I've just named, and you also ask God for these four graces. Go to him in prayer and say, Lord, give me the grace not to guard my honor. Give me the grace to entrust justice to you. Give me the grace to control my tongue and to refuse slanderous gossip, which is poisonous. And this requires discernment because it is appropriate to process conflict with trusted parties. So that's discernment. I'm not always clear myself on what's so that's something between you and the Lord to some degree, although Keller's book also has helpful guidance on that. Then ask for the grace to guard your heart against ill will, vilifying, nursing resentment. Um, and then ask for the grace to, to pray blessing upon this person. Actually begin blessing your enemy. You know, it's hard to remain bitter towards someone when you're routinely asking God to bless them. In 1963, someone burned a cross in Martin Luther King's front yard. You know what he did? He got up, he put on his best suit, he went to the front yard full of reporters, he picked the cross up out of the grass, and he uttered a prayer that God would show favor and bless those who did this, that he would extend to them forgiveness and kindness. The teachings of Jesus were just welling up within him, this great man who then reminded us in his famous speech, the ultimate weakness of violent retaliation of not turning the other cheek, but of throwing a fist, the ultimate weakness of violent retaliation is that it is a violent spiral. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. 
Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. So that's what forgiveness is. It's a bit on how to do it. What are its fruits? Well, the fruits of turning the other cheek, of forgiving and not nursing resentment, they're abundant. First and foremost, it means your own freedom. Bitterness is, it's been said, is drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's rubbing dirt in a wound. Forgiveness, on the other hand, it it cleans the wound to allow it to heal. And, you know, it may leave a scar. The things that we have suffered actually do leave scars, but the scar is actually what? It's evidence of a healed wound, one that hasn't festered. So according to Mayo Clinic, forgiveness leads to healthier relationships, improved mental health, less anxiety, stress, and hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, improved self-esteem. We could go on. But these things are largely bodily signs of the interior freedom of the soul. When we refuse to forgive, when we foster resentment, how, how do we know we're doing it? Well, we feel cramped, and it overflows even into our own bodies. Here are some signs you might be nursing resentment if you're just wanting to take an inventory. You roll your eyes when speaking or thinking about this person a lot. You're satisfied when you hear that they're having problems. You start feeling a lot of awkwardness in the relationship, perhaps. You start avoiding them, and yet you think about them all the time. And then you begin slandering them. Now, now, now these are symptoms of of a cramped soul in need of the freedom that forgiveness offers. Again, Philippe offers this. He says, when our hearts feel cramped, we very often need to seek no other reason than this. We are refusing to love and forgive generously. When our hearts are cramped, it's probably because we're refusing to love and forgive generously. There is such freedom in forgiving. So first, turning the other cheek means you are to love others by not jealously guarding your own honor. Second, it means refusing resentment and practicing forgiveness. And third and finally, turning the other cheek means you are to love others with extreme generosity. The turning of the cheek hints at a charity of heart towards the brokenness of others that becomes very clear in Jesus' uh, subsequent words. He says, If someone asks for your coat, don't withhold for them your shirt. Give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. The clothing in this verse refers to two separate garments, kind of an outer garment and an inner one, like Mormon underwear. That's always on my mind when I read this verse. It's basically an inner garment and a coat over it. And Jesus says, if someone asks for you for your outer cloak, give it. If they ask for your Mormon underwear, give that too. And what does that mean? You're naked. You know, the poor in this day would literally have those two pieces of clothing and that's it. And so Jesus, perhaps hyperbolically again, is getting his point across, you are to love others with extreme generosity, with extreme disregard for yourself. And so there it is. You are to love others by relinquishing your rights to honor, by refusing resentment and practicing forgiveness, and then responding with extreme generosity. But there's one more question that needs to be asked and answered so that this isn't just kind of a do this, you should do it. Why? Why am I actually able to do this? Because loving this way is not easy and it is not natural. Why am I able to love this way? Here's a summary of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God has loved us humanly so as to render our hearts capable of loving divinely. Or as St. Athanasius put it, God has become man so that man might become God, that is, partakers in the divine nature. 
So in the second half, and that's what we're talking about in this series, life in Christ, that's it. In the second half of the teaching, beginning in Luke 6, 32, Jesus contrasts the worldly way of loving and the way disciples are called to love. You know, even, even sinners do that. If you only love those who love you, even sinners do that, but you love your enemies. And then he roots all of that in this last verse, verse 36, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. He anchors it all in the loving mercy of God. You see, it's like a gravity at the end of this teaching that pulls everything in that direction. In Ephesians 2, it says, we used to love, you and I, disciples, we used to love like everyone else, always asking, what's in it for me? And that's kind of the worldly way of loving. It's like the plains below the mountain. But then here is the mountain, the the Himalayan mountain range, Ephesians 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. For you are God's handiwork, his poems, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's why we're able to turn the other cheek, to love others by relinquishing honor and resentment and forgiving and generously, because Jesus, on our behalf, relinquished his honor, forgave us, gifted us everything, That's why when Jesus says, love your enemies, he uses a very specific word for love in Greek. Now, we have like 10 MDivs in here. How many words are there for love in Greek? Anyone? Four? Okay. Um, Love is a, it's a, it's a bad word in English. It's just, it's like, I love, I love cookies and I love my wife. Are those the same things, you know? Um, In Greek, there are four words. Storge, which is natural affection. There's eros, which is romantic love. There's philea, which is the love of friendship. And then there's agape love, which is the kind of love that God loves us with. It's a distinct kind of love. It's a love not motivated by the merit of the one who is loved. You know, the other loves come very naturally. You might fall into eros, right? But agape love supersedes natural inclinations. It often exists in spite of them. It's a deliberate love that is rooted in the will. It's a choice. Here's one pastor's definition. Agape is a deep, continuous, growing, and ever-renewing activity of the will superintended by the Holy Spirit because it isn't natural. It's divine. Agape love says, I will love this person because by God's grace, I choose to as God has chosen to love me. Agape love is generous. It's exceedingly forgiving. It's extraordinarily humble. So what is a healthy community? A healthy community is an agape above all community. Agape above political party. Please, Lord. Agape above my rights. Agape above my honor. Agape above the shirt on my back and more. A community will be healthy to the extent that it lives in and lives out the agape love of Christ with one another. It's that simple. St. John of the Cross put it this way, where there is no love, put love, and you will harvest love. Where there is no love, put love, and you will harvest love. So as we move to take communion in a few moments, just know this. God has put his agape love in you that you might bear a harvest of agape love loving others humbly and graciously and generously. Remember, as you take the bread and the cup, remember what lengths Jesus went to make you, once an enemy, a friend. I want to leave you lingering in these words that summarize everything I've said. Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness 
and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put it away. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Father, we know that each of us is in process, that you're calling us to this very high and beautiful ideal, but it takes a long time of walking with you to get there. So give us grace for today. We are each imperfect, fumbling along. We pray that you would give us the grace to just take that one more step towards this beautiful vision, towards ascending this mountain. What does it look like for me to just practice forgiveness today, even in some small way, to step in that direction? Would you lead us by your Spirit? Would you sustain us by your grace, by your forgiveness, nurture us, remind us of the way you've lavishly poured out your forgiveness on us as we forgive others? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.